You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome to season two, and I'm really glad you've tuned in for some more interviews concerning nations and neighbors. And I'm especially excited to launch season two with an interview with my dad. I really have a ton of appreciation for my parents and so many things about that. And I think if you've heard me preach for very long at all, you have heard a lot about that. Uh, So I don't want to give away much of the interview, but I do credit my parents with a good bit of the passion I feel for missions uh, has come from the way they raised me in the church in which uh, we stayed my whole life uh, growing up. And so uh, you're going to hear some about, some about that in this episode. And I'm just excited to launch this season and also to begin it in exactly this way. So without me going into anything else, uh, let's kick off season two of Neighbors and Nations with my interview with Dr. Roger Stiles, my father. Well, welcome to season two of Neighbors and Nations. I'm really excited to get this season underway, and especially because I get to start this season off interviewing my father, Dr. Roger Stiles. Hello, Dad. Hello, son. (laughs) Good to be with you. You know, we began season one with Brett interviewing me just about some of the God-created passions for both Neighbors and Nations and how some of that developed in my life by his sovereignty. And I want to take some time in this opening episode of season two and just ask my father about some of those same things that God did in his life. Uh, Dad, you're, you'll are you be 83 this August, right? That's right. And so I think we'll get a good chance here to hear about God's work over a long period of time and how he developed in you a love for both neighbors and nations. And a lot of this will be stories from your life and stories from when I was home and uh, how that impacted me and uh, obviously how God used it in my life is because he used it in your life probably first. That's right. So uh, let's just start and jump right into this. Um, In as succinct way as possible, when do you think God began to open your eyes, maybe open your heart to the fact that there was more to your world than just you? Like there's lost people around you, both near and far, that your world had to be bigger than just you going after what you wanted. Well, it was a process that started as a, as a child, I grew up in a church where the pastor was also an evangelist, and he preached in he preached in tent revivals around the city of Atlanta while I pastored the church. And he every Sunday night was was an evangelistic message. Okay, now give me an idea of maybe what years that would have been. You have any idea? I was a seven, eight, nine, nineteen, forty three. Okay, so 44. in the forties, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I just. Grew up hearing him preach. He preached to sinners, and I thought it was those sinners out there, you know, bad guys, because he went to jails and preached, and he told stories about that. So I had my mind about all those bad guys, you know. Then one day, uh, I was uh, coming home from school, and my brother was with me, and I did something that I thought was cute, and he just looked at me and said, Roger, that's a sin. And it just dawned on me in a little while, I'm a sinner. And I thought, I'm as bad as those guys the preacher preaches about. <laughs> and I thought, I got to get saved. 
but I didn't, I didn't know how to go to anybody and ask to get saved. I thought you had to do it at church because they always did, you know, gave invitations. So on Sunday, I went to junior church, didn't have a regular, I didn't go to regular, went to junior church and when they gave invitation, I went forward and I, I'm sure I must have been saved earlier than that time, but I went forward and professed Christ and uh, got rid of that guilt I felt. It was just so terrible. It was pressing on me to think I was as bad as those bad guys that preacher preached about. That's interesting that um, that your brother then, yes, he, Uncle George, we call him, right? That's right. He was the one that pointed that out to you. Some, something I did I thought was cute, like other boys did it, you know. Mm, and, sure. he's, and he just stopped me right now. Yeah, that just got my attention immediately. Do you know how long that was before that Sunday night when you kind of, quote, unquote, walked the aisle? Was that a few months, a couple no. of years, or a few days? It was during the week. The next Sunday, I did it. The next Sunday? Oh, yes. So I God's mean, conviction was strong. Oh, it was strong. I would, I, I, I swear I'd die before Sunday got there. <laughs> As a 10-year-old, you know, I just, that's how I felt. <laughs> so that was your conversion moment? That was my conversion moment. Yes, it was. And so I like how you said it. It's a process, no doubt, that God... Uh, works in us to open our eyes to the world around us. But that was the seed starting point, so to speak, yeah, you're saying. it was through that. Then, of course, we were in good churches, and my parents were big on uh, missions. And then when I got into high school, that they had grown, and we began to have missionaries in the home. And we'd go to missionary. Our church had mission conferences, and we went, heard missionaries and met missionaries and saw them and talked to them. And they were just real people in a real world, ministering to real people. But it still didn't, it didn't go home to me. You always thought a foreign country was so different. You had to be different to reach it, more than just language, you know. And when finally in college, I realized they're just like we are. Hmm. They just have a different culture and live there, but they're just like we are. So going over there is no different than doing it here, except learning the language and adjusting the culture. It dawned on me. And of course, during that time, when I went to college, I, I thought I was going to be a preacher. And so I took every opportunity to go out of it. So we go to the neighborhood, neighborhood and hold Bible clubs and, and teach Bible every Saturday and Sunday afternoon, go to the jails on Sunday afternoon and preach and just go to the street corner. We had, back then, had street, street meetings, and we'd go to the street corners in downtown Chattanooga and all of us around and sing and play the music and, and, and preach and just. It was just what you did, and you did it there because that's where you were. And then, as the as God spoke to students during mission conference, there was somebody would commit to mission. Then they'd go, they'd come back and speak it, and it just it just was it. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, it's interesting. You said that uh, when you were in high school, you had missionaries in your home, and so when folks hear that, they may think that your father and mother just were always solid, you know, staunch Christians, but actually. While your mom was a born-again believer, your dad wasn't saved his whole adult life, was he? No, my dad was a—he uh, grew up, of course, in North Georgia, and mother just got saved, a little girl in a country church, and just knew salvation only, you know, but she knew righteous living because that's what her parents made her do. And dad was not a bad guy. He just was what boys are, you know. He had his own way. and But he was an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever, He believed yeah. the gospel. And, the, and they got married, and they moved to Atlanta because that's where jobs were, and he went to work as a meat market manager and meat cutter at first and the mother was had met some women and was going to this church where the pastor was so such a good preacher and uh 
he was holding revivals around the city. And so somewhere in that, she got my dad to go to one of the tent revivals, not to go to church, but go to one of the tent revivals where Jesse Henley was preaching. So let's just pause there for a minute and let's give some specifics that the pastor's name was Jesse Henley. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he pastored Colonial Hills Baptist Church right. in Atlanta. Well, in East Point, right next East to East Point, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he would actually pastor the church and have services like we do today. But on Sunday nights, you said he did revival stuff. No, Sunday night was a church with evangelistic message in the church. In the church, okay. Then he would go take weeks in the summer. Okay. And hold tent revivals for Monday through Saturday. In the same city, though, like In Atlanta. the same city, yeah. And okay. go to the Memorial Auditorium and fill it up. He just You could mention Jess Henley and fill it up in Atlanta. Wow. And so this is one of those uh, in Atlanta kind of tent revivals, auditorium, crusade-like things? Yes, and Dad went. And because your mom said, we're going. I guess she did. <laughs> I, and Dad went, and uh, he was saved immediately. And when he was saved, he was changed. Amen. Yeah. It's an emotional moment for her, I can yeah. tell. I mean, he loved his pastor. Jesse Henley was next to God, <laughs> my yeah. daddy. Well, you tend to really hold on a pedestal in the right way, those who point you to Christ, don't you? Yeah. So how old were you then? Was that after you were born again? Uh, no, but I, he was saved by the time I was born. First oh, okay. time I was born. Okay. So I've never known him to be anything but, but saved. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. So by the time you were 10, he had grown a lot. Oh, yes. And obviously your mom had grown a lot. So you knew by that time they had had missionaries in the home. So I'm hearing from that, that even your church, Jesse Henley's church, Colonial Hills, had a strong missions kind of emphasis. Yes, we had, we were the first person I ever had, had a big board of the, the Lights on the ground, we're sure we support them. That's, that's when I was a 10-year-old kid. So you grew up in an environment where it was common to send money, to yeah. support financially, to have them back at your church, to have them in your home. That's just That was just the way life was. I didn't know life was any different anywhere else. I thought the only way anybody lived. Mm-hmm. And yet you also saw your own pastor preaching to lost people intentionally in your own city. Absolutely. Yeah, he would go to jails and he'd, he'd come back and tell, in his sermon, tell stories of guys he met that got saved or those that didn't get saved. And he told, he walked one with him to the to the electric chamber, had to watch, watch him die because of his sin. Wow. Oh, he led him to the Lord. Hmm. I have a feeling that had to affect you then as you got into college. I mean, you have a whole, what, 18 years of watching yeah. a church and a family just love people who are around them who are lost and then support missionaries. So you go to college and you dive in at Tennessee Temple. Is that correct? Mm-hmm, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you said you felt like you were going to be a preacher. I thought so. I thought surely I'm, I'm, I'm still a frustrated preacher. <laughs> and I would have been a terrible preacher. So God took me out of it before I destroyed somebody in the pulpit. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, you're not a terrible preacher, but um, it's interesting that that shows a longing of your heart, though, to get the gospel to people. Yeah, yeah, we, you we, did that through another vehicle, through education. We won't go to that now. But you, so you go to Temple and you have this desire to just preach. So I saw this picture of you uh, several years ago. I'd never seen it before, but of you preaching, you have a tie and a suit on, and and you seem like you're almost Billy Graham esque, like, and you're preaching in Indianapolis. Yes, and you're a college student. Yes. So tell me that story. When I was a freshman, and every year I was in college, there was a church in Indianapolis, Indiana, that wanted to hold. Revival meetings outside of the Indianapolis Speedway the night before the race. Okay, and there are, and if you go up there, they have just a fair almost going on. Everybody's got tables set up and booths set up, and I mean they're having all kind of stuff go on. So the church bought one of those sections 
and set up a pulpit and a stand. And uh, they invited preacher boys up from Temple. I guess they, you know, was. And so we'd go up to two or three cars of us, drive, drive up and get up there the day before, and the church take care of us. Then we'd, we'd go out there that, that, that night. They had it all set up. And then we preacher boys would stay there to witness and pass out tracts. And one would be preached, and 30 minutes later, somebody else preached, and just did that all night. Like so a that, marathon. Yeah, that's, that's what you did because everything was going on the whole night before the race. And so we just got part of that thing. Now, I mean, it, it, it could be pretty dangerous because people got drunk in that area and they might offend, be offended. But you just, so you always had a bunch of guys taking care of the girls. If some girls wouldn't sing, you had to have guys to protect them. But we just did it and just thought it was fun. We thought mm-hmm. that was one of the fun things you did. Then yeah. we came back to Chattanooga as soon as it was over. That's interesting uh, to, just to hear your heart, though, for even local evangelism and preaching the gospel. So I know I grew up at Highland Park Baptist and Tennessee Temple. Obviously, you came back to Temple in the 70s, and that's what I remember mostly about growing up are those junior high and high school years and college years here. Was it as uh, missionary-focused then when you were in college as it was as I remember when I grew up here? As much or more so. Okay. We had the missionary conference. I don't know if it was a whole week when you were in school. It was. Okay, but it was a whole week morning. And they cut off classes. You went morning services, afternoon services, evening services, and you went to all of them. You didn't miss one unless you had a job that you had to obviate to, you know. And you just And they just were there. Missionaries set up booths, and you'd go talk to them and get up track. Just spend a whole week with them. Do you ever feel the sense that maybe missions was in your future? Never had thought missions until I knew after going to Indianapolis, I knew evangelism was not mine because I, when I got up there with that crowd wild like that, I couldn't, my manner just couldn't handle it. You had to have somebody get up and yell and go around, you know, and I couldn't do that. So I knew that evangelism. So I thought I'd be a pastor. And then when I got rejected from a seminary I wanted to go to, I thought, I can't be a pastor if I can't go to that seminary. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the way I thought. So, but God did, did get, God did give me the opportunity by rejecting me at that seminary to put me at Temple Seminary. And then I had the opportunity to be a, a grad assistant teacher in the university. And that's when God said, you're going to be a teacher, boy. Get, get over this preaching bit. You're, not, you're a bad preacher. You'll not be a good pastor. You'll not be a good evangelist. You're, so I thought, well, I've got to be a missionary. Because when I grew up, you learn, if, if God called you, you had three things to do, four things to do. You could be a missionary or an evangelist or a pastor or out of God's will. Well, those are your four options. Hmm. Well, I'd already checked three of them off. <laughs> and I thought, well, I've got to be a missionary. So I applied to a mission board. You did? Mm-hmm. And was accepted. Was ready to start doing deputation. And God said, you are not going to be a good missionary. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, we were going to Alaska. Wow. And I was ready to do, do deportation, and God said, you're not going to do it. So I went and talked to Dr. Roberts and said, well, what am I going to do? I can't do any of those, and that's the only thing I got. And he said, I said, but I, he said, I hear you're a pretty good teacher. I was teaching as a grad assistant then, you know. Okay. That's a lie. I was a terrible teacher. But he said, I hear you're good. I said, well, I love it. But I said, that's not what God's called me. He, he, he said, well, do you think my teachers are out of God's will? And I said, well. Maybe not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's when God said, okay, you're going to be a teacher. That's when I applied to UT and the whole world changed and been easy since mm. then. Well, it's comforting to know that 
that's not actually true, that there's only got three options or you're well, out. It, I mean, I know that's what he thought. But that's kind of my mentality. Yeah. It's not, I didn't really think that, but that's kind of the way yeah. I, I made decisions, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I was felt God's calling my wife very, very strongly. Sure. And I just couldn't think of teaching them. But then, anyway, God worked it out. Yeah. What's, what's, uh, what's uh, ideal is if we can continue to press upon people, like our listeners of this podcast, God's call is upon all of us to make disciples. That's right. Yeah. And whatever platform you choose, whether it's engineer or, as your case, a teacher, uh, man, God can use any of those platforms, construction worker, nurse, homemaker, you know, uh, to make disciples. And um, it's neat how the Lord, by his own sovereign power, would not let you fall into the trap of thinking you had to be a pastor, evangelist, or missionary, but he could use you in any field. Yeah. So you and mom... Um, <laughs> I know growing up, I would probably echo what you said about how you were raised. I think missions was just part and parcel to being raised by you and mom. It, uh, I don't know that we had a bunch in the home all the time. We had some, but I remember it just being a constant point of conversation. You just seemed like you knew a lot of missionaries. Uh, I think mainly the ones that your parents knew well would be LT and Geraldine Everett. Yes. And were they, was it Bolivia? Bolivia is where they went up. For a while. Um, were there other ones that you knew well? Their name slipped me, but I'm trying to think a, if you knew some more. A couple of them, Curtis. They went on a new oh, trial. Right. Was it Jim Curtis? Jim Curtis. That's right. And fabulous, fabulous guy and, and wife, and they went to the Amazon okay. area. My dad loved young people, but as he got older, he wanted to get 20- and 30-year-old people one wish field and support. That's what he wanted to do. Okay. So he would uh, make it a point take these young guy, young couples under his wing, and he didn't have a lot of money, but he'd, he'd send them some money and love them to death, and they loved him. That's they'd cool. to see us. Yeah, we called him Pop, and that does sound like Pop. I can recall him always being so complimentary of uh, people at a church who were young and wanted to go to the mission field. I can recall that even in you guys. Um, well, do you think he just kind of followed that? Like, that seemed natural in our home, just to talk about missions yeah. all the time, talk about missionaries, pray for them. You think you just followed that because that's how you were raised, or was that something that God was doing in your heart even uh, because of where you were? Like, like, Explain that to me a little bit. What gave you and Mom such a desire to make missionaries visible in your home? Well, we had just seen it, and we saw it at church. Your mother didn't have that background of that. You know, in her church, it was missionary-minded, but a little different approach being a small rural church. But uh, we got there, and it's just the way I lived, and she bought into it immediately because she bought into what God wanted to do, and uh, we saw it in the church we were going in, and I was in the school where I was and where she worked in the church, and it's just been all I knew. I, I, swear, I swear I thought the world was. I didn't know it was different. Mm-hmm. I did know there was a world out there, but I mean, I just thought everybody who loved the Lord thought that way. There's something about that that seems to say to me that you knew there was a mission, like a singular mission, that's larger than the different missions. Like everyone has their unique calling or churches have their unique bents, you know, like different emphases. But all of that's aimed at one mission, and that is to get the gospel to the world. Yeah. It seemed like that was almost inherent to you. Like, of course, that's what we're all about. You were taught always end with an invitation and not necessarily a formal invitation, but bring it to a decision point when you ended anything that you did. Teaching a class don't do anything. You, you brought it to a point of decision, and the guy listening had to make decision, yes, no. Now, you didn't ask him for your decision, but he, he had to think that. Mm. And you'd ask him for a decision if it were right. Did you make door-to-door visitations? 
you know, that whole thing, inviting people that had visited your church to come back or knocking on doors and introduce your church to people. And it was always a decision that you were looking at at some point in time. Sure. So let me ask you uh, your opinion on something. Get a little more personal here. Um, I tend to think, and I, I believe that there is a difference, at least uh, definitionally, in missions and evangelism. I think missions means you cross a barrier, more than likely a language barrier, to take the gospel. I think otherwise it's evangelism and outreach, which if there's no barrier to cross, you still are given the gospel, but maybe there's not a barrier. Now, I don't know if that it has to be bought into, but did when you were in college, let's say, growing up, or even those early years of marriage, did you see... Uh, did you think about them in different terms, or was it all just one thing to you, or how did you think about it? I'm just curious. Well, there was church, and it was the tent revival evangelism, and the revivalistic evangelistic services you had, and then there was home missions. Okay. Which was within your nation, the open nation, and then there was foreign missions. Okay, so the words were like home missions and foreign yeah. missions. That's, mm-hmm. Okay, I see. That's how we. That's how we thought of things. We didn't see them as different, except distance was the only difference. Okay. And language, of course, became a difference, you know. Yeah, distance. That, that yeah. would make sense, though. That is a reality. Let's just talk about this for a minute. So it's so another difference in this whole topic of neighbors and nations is between the words access and need. And I ask a lot of my guests this question because I think it's very interesting. And I want to keep our listeners pointed this to this because I think it's something to think about. Uh, did you think much in those days about the fact that everyone has the same need, but not everyone has the same access. And and did you hear that much in, in those days, or was it just simply like everyone needs the gospel, get everywhere you can, or does that make any sense what I'm even, even saying here? Well, our thought was everyone needed the gospel. We did find out after you look at the mission, there were certain places you could not go. You were not welcome. Okay. And because you were not welcome, you could not take the gospel. Then was always somebody with with missionary radio, Mm-hmm. and the missionary station. So if you like that radio, you could go there and work for the radio to send the gospel to places that you couldn't, you couldn't go. And so that was a big thing in my day. There were some big radio, Christian radio, missionary radio stations that exist that still exist today. Sure. And uh, that's a great ministry for those that you can't go to. Helps deal with the access issue. Yes, uh, yes, it yeah, does. You can't go in person. Yeah. I just think those words, those words have been something of the, maybe the last few decades, and I wasn't sure if maybe when you were in your early training years, if maybe they had used those words or different words. Different words, I'm sure. I'd never heard those words. You can't, you can go or can't go, mm-hmm. and, and radio's way for those you can't go. That was, that was the way we thought of it. You know, Dad, we're talking about the words access and need. I know recently uh, you had a missionary in your church, uh, Scott Phillips. Yes, and mm-hmm. you called me. I think it was the very next day, or we were talking and. And you were mentioning how much he sounded like the way we talk about missions at our church. And uh, you were just so excited. And so I got in touch with Scott. We began to talk a little bit. I get his newsletter now. But he has some of that same language. Talk a little bit about what impressed you about Scott. I'm not trying to build Scott up, but I think it was a moment when you realized, wow, there are young people who are going to unreached places. And, and he really stirred your heart, I think. Yeah, give me some, uh, talk about that experience for a bit. I knew Scott's father and... Uh... I knew when he was a student at Temple. Okay. And he was somewhat different. <laughs> he was a skateboarder, and he did everything different. And a lot of students, I was on the faculty at that time, a lot of students thought, he just doesn't belong here. You know, you, you knew that. But the pastor saw his heart. 
And he would, he'd go out skateboarding, go reach skateboarders and bring them to church next Sunday. And they'd show up looking awful, but they'd be with him, you know, and you'd see them get saved. Hmm. He was just different, you know. And he, then he went to Indonesia on his own, just went out there, just got some support, but he didn't go as a big missionary. He went out there to, a, to Indonesia and found out a tribe called the Dao tribe that had never heard the gospel way up in the mountains. They had no written language, nothing. He took his, he took a wife and he met on skateboarding down in Chattanooga. She, he almost ran out in front of her car and she had to stop. He went and witness to her. And she was a Christian. They got found love, got saved. <laughs> I didn't know. Crazy that. story, <laughs> crazy kid. But God had built that into to go to that crazy place up there and meet that bunch of people that didn't have any concept of God. And to take them the message and find out their story. It's in the book. I couldn't begin to go into a fabulous story of how he found out and led that tri- Dow tribe toward the Lord Jesus Christ and still working with them right now. And when he came back and spoke to our church, I knew all the history, but I didn't know. But he would use the same words he used. God wants the gospel of nations, try every nation, tribe, and people's group, right? That's the way you say it. When he said that, I thought, Todd, love that. I'm going to tell Todd about him because I know he's so good and Todd would buy it, but he might not buy somebody else over here. He might think we're different, but he'll like him. And I so that's why I did because I thought he used your same words. I knew he had your same heart, and I thought, he'll like that. Yeah, yeah. in every nation language tribe yeah, and that, tongue. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what he would say all the time, you know. Well, I really appreciate you putting me in touch with this guy. We have talked a few times, and uh, what he's done there with the Dow tribe is quite amazing. Exactly. He went to a place with no access. Well, when he went there... He was telling about Jesus, and they just didn't. And a man in that, an older man in that tribe, told the rest of them that he had a that he had a vision from God years ago that a white man would come and tell them the gospel. Wow! And he that here's the white man. He told him here's the white man. God said to us, "Is that fabulous?" And that's just sovereign. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty stirring. You got to read that book to read the, all the wow. details. I think things like that, um, from someone your age and with your experience, uh, really emboldens young people to read and to listen and to interact with those who are in places like Indonesia, but who are really unknown because they're not, you know, Scott's not the celebrity pastor no. on the circuit. Mm-hmm. He's not going to get the big wig invitations, but man, his story is such that it keeps your heart tender for the mission of God. That's what I see in you right now. Is, your heart is even at 83 tenderized to what God's doing in places where they'd never heard of him. And, and, and young people hear that story, they'd be challenged. He, he challenged me. He's so young yet, you know. Yeah, he is. He's got, what, six kids, but he looks yeah. like he's about 25. I know he does. <laughs> Acts like it too, yeah. He's wonderful. You talked about how your father was committed to young people. I've seen that in you as well. I mean, one of the things I really love about you is you get on board young people and you're not afraid to hand the baton to the next generation I've always appreciated that about you. Um, talk about why why young people should invest in missions. I mean, you believe in young people. You want to see them succeed. You want to see them follow God's heart. Part of that has to be an acceptance of God's mission to get the gospel, you know, the Great Commission. I mean, so tell tell young people, regardless of their field, whether it's engineering or pastoring, why should they invest in missions? Well, there's two ways to invest in missions. One is to go. The other is to give. 
And what I found out was any mission field or any mission area to which I gave, I was ready to go to that field and do something. I found out from them information about the field, and I found my heart. Now, I didn't go much, didn't have the money to go, but if I had, I would have, I would have gone not to stay there, but for a, for a while to see what it was, just the witness to, you know, just to see it. And so I think when you give yourself to it, and you can do that in prayer, you can give yourself to a, to a mission field in prayer, and pretty soon God will put that mission on, on your heart to go. And then I think God, it, when it's such a commitment of life that you're going to be away from everybody, it, to me, it, to me in my way of thinking, there has to be some kind of almost God saying, you got to go and you got to feel that need that you're willing to make those sacrifices which are greater than just witnessing in your neighborhood. They're really basic sacrifices, give up your family and opportunities. So I see that being special, but, if you, but it's big right now to go as a teacher. We got a lot of Christian people in China who are doing what they can because they teach English is a second language over there. That, that, that's a big deal. That's a big mission area. Mm. And so I'm sure that places where there are needs for engineers. Medical field? Yes, that there's a great opportunity to go. And everybody should look at their, at their field as, as the world for their profession. That's good. There's some gold nuggets there for sure. That's good. And that, I think that really is different than maybe what you were told. And it wasn't meant to be bad, but it, there, are, there are other ways to get to the field than just pastor, preacher, missionary. Right. Or evangelist, I mean, right? Mm-hmm, you can go right. with all kinds of professions, but God could put you somewhere strategically and intentionally for his purposes. Yeah. That, like the kids that, that majored in radio. Mm. And they went to Christian radio station around the world, and they're there right now. We support somebody at our church through missions. And you supported missionaries individually as well as through your church. Is that correct? Yes. You we just, did. Yeah, somebody we loved and knew. And when we had a little extra money, we'd send it to them. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you're saying that money often opened up your heart to learn more. And like money kind of almost led the way. Like Where your treasure is, how your heart is. Yeah. Amen. And so when you send money, a little bit doesn't help them very much, but it binds you to them to pr- in prayer. Hmm. It would be the kick, might be the kicker to get you go. God maybe used that to get you get you just enough committed to go, you know. Yeah, you say it a little bit doesn't help them much, and that's true in our human sense, but sometimes that little bit's like the little, you know, lunch the little boy gave. It's used by God in a great way. You know I that. Know that. But, uh-huh. it, it, but when you send it, you think, boy, they need so much. This won't do anything, but I'm going to send it to let them know I love them. That's not what... And I love that because you're saying, even if it's a little, go ahead and send it. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Like, don't be afraid to send a little amount. More happens from that than you realize. It's, it, it's, they feel the love hmm. and support. And they know if you send a dollar that, you, that you're praying for, they know they, they love that more than the money. What do you think is a big obstacle to both evangelism among our neighbors and missions among the nations right now? And let's just stay on the topic of young people. Uh, you're at a, a place in your life where you can look back with a lot of experience and a very good perspective. You've seen a number of generations and things in our country and in the church. What do you think is a current obstacle to those two things happening to a larger degree? I think the church and young people, the ones that can do this more than older people, have got to realize what technology has done to the evangelistic message and to the process and the missions process, what it's done to it. They've got to make it, use it to work for it. 
and there's the av avenue to do it today, to do it here, neighbor, and across the sea at the same time through, I don't know what, Facebook, whatever they do. You know, it there's an avenue there that we never thought about. That's fabulous. And these young people are so good at that. I can't do that. I can hardly get on Facebook even when I have a little <laughs> play. I don't even enjoy it. I, I can't have wasting time. But, uh, but uh, these young guys, they just have all kinds of up. And they're so brilliant. They're so... They're so bright, and they're so creative. This, this thing's opened up a whole new world for them. And God just said, come on, use it. So you say embrace new methods. Yeah, boy, I mean, go get it. Amen. Because that, that, that's, that's what they, the people that they want to reach their age, that's what they're doing in, in that country or in other parts of the state. They're, they're using that media. Well, I got to tell you, on behalf, uh, I mean, I'm 56, my son's 29, um, but on behalf of young people that I, I that I work with a lot, it means a ton to have people you're from your generation, your age, believe in us, and even the one behind the generation behind me believe in them, because the Great Commission won't be accomplished if we don't keep, uh, you know, praying that God would fan into flame the gift that's in them. It has to be about who's coming after us, and you've done that so well. Um, help help me uh, help pastors for a moment, because I think there's one thing that you have in common with pastors, uh, even though you feel like you weren't, you would have been a bad one. <laughs> I don't agree with that. But uh, one thing that pastors deal with in regards to evangelism and missions is we sometimes create our very own bubble. It's not that we mean to, but a Temple was this way. I mean, you worked in a great greenhouse, at least from my opinion, a wonderful greenhouse that really birthed in you a heart for God, a love for the nations. But you were all day around fellow Christians, in the university or in the church setting. And that's what pastors have done. Sometimes we've planted churches and, and we love our flock, but we're not really around lost people a lot. And you have to create schedules and invent ways that you're just not always at the office. But anyway, help pastors deal with that. Help them not find themselves suddenly living just in their own bubble where all they ever see is saved people. How can What can they do? How can they interact with more lost people? Any suggestions or advice there? That's a difficult thing. And so... But you need and you need to intentionally put your place in the middle of unsafe people. Go to a park where you're not known, you're not the preacher, you're just another guy, and maybe take one or two people with you so that they see it because they might they might learn about it and force yourself into that world. You've just got to force yourself to it. You can't it won't happen accidentally. Mm. I mean, I, I, that's not a good word you like, but I mean, it's, it's, unless you intentionally do it, it won't happen. Oh, I like that, actually. You're right. Yeah. Anything else that pastors could hear from your heart about staying connected to neighbors and nations? Well, having people in your, come through your church, of course, get a, I think you ought to be supporting some missionaries, I think, that you bring back and they've, tell you, and you, the people in church see them face to face and know them. That, that's a, a big part of patients of up becomes so real. Uh, but you've got to have an immediate, you got to have something beyond just that, and that's reaching out in your community and your neighborhood and your state, and that's just intentional going to places where there are people that you don't know whether they're saved or lost, and it's just a normal world. And they you urge your church to see their office as as that, not every not everybody is a, as a target necessarily, but everybody in the office that, that's their world. Mm -hmm. 
You're they, part of the Christian Businessmen's Committee here in Chattanooga, aren't you? Or you go to their meetings? I go to their meetings. I'm, I'm, we, yeah, we have, there's another group, too, that we get with them. And so yeah, there's two of those groups that, that bring men together to encourage one another and to step out and, and strengthen others to witness. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, a story that I remember, when you talk about going to places where you're just another guy, is I remember, I don't know how this happened, but you met a ball player that played for the Chattanooga Lookouts, I don't know how you met him, but I remember he came home, and uh, I think somehow you found that he was a Christian in your conversation with him at some point. I thought his name was Keith. He was a pitcher, and this was when the lookouts were in the Cincinnati Reds. I think it was when they were in their farm system. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that story at yes. all? Yes. We I was a big lookouts fan, big baseball fan, and I loved the young players. So they were going to go to the big leagues one day, so I want to get to meet them and know them so that when they're at the big leagues, I might know them, have a ball <laughs> signed by them. Or I remember that. You're and right. And so uh, somewhere, I guess, I just happened to meet him. I, God just directed. You're I don't right. know. Outside the locker room, started talking to him. He was so easy to talk to, and I just invited him over because he was glad to get away from the apartment, the home, and all about ball cooking, have home cooking, and and he just loved it, and Kevin, he showed us how to throw pitches, you know. Remember call that? I do remember that. And uh, and he just had a ball, great time. And so you just have, God just placed me there, and I, my baseball love gave me access to a baseball player. And a conversation. But I remember him coming over after a yeah. game one night, and I remember mm -hmm. as a kid thinking, how did my dad meet people like this, and how do they find out they're a Christian? But it's what you're saying. You kind of forced yourself in environments where you could just be a normal person. Yeah, I, I was very normal. I was a big baseball fan. That's all he knew I was. And so he liked baseball fans. That was his world, you know. I don't guess he ever made the big leagues, but he was a, he made my big leagues. Yeah, that's really neat. I remember another story in which, uh, and Mom refused to be on this podcast. She wouldn't dare sit down for an interview. <laughs> but she's in the house somewhere here. Uh, we're sitting here at the kitchen counter right now, in fact, in Chattanooga. But uh, I remember one story. We Y'all had looked at, I'm not sure if this is when you sold your house in Brainerd or not, but a realtor came over to at least check the house out. Now, you eventually did sell. I'm not sure if this is when that time was, but I was still at home. And when she walked through the house to kind of get a sense of it, what it's going to sell for and look at it, when she got to the front door, I don't even know if you were home then, uh, but she turned around. I remember this so vividly. She looked at mom and she said, you know, I really like your home. It's like the Lord has been here. And I remember uh, I there, as a yeah. college kid, I think I was in college, maybe not, but I, I was at least high school. I, I was I remember thinking, now that's the kind of witness I want to have one day is that when a stranger comes in and spends 20 minutes and leaves, they feel like God is around. I remember that just thinking, man, something about that is a normal that's that's awesome. That's because your mother was there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you and mom both have had that incredible um, God-given ability just to be a good witness to your neighbors, whether it's a guy at the ballpark or the realtor. Uh, and yet you have a heart for nations because I, I've always known that missionaries matter and that God's mission of the nations matter. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that I have such a heart for missions today is because it, it mattered to you guys for so many years growing up. And I just thought it was fitting to be able to sit down and talk with you about how God worked that in your heart and um, hear some of your stories. And I hope our listeners have benefited from yeah, hearing us talk about it together. I this, really love this, you, and I appreciate you just sharing your heart with us. This is not scripted. It's just my story, you know. Yeah, I think it's the best part about it. It's not scripted. And so, yeah, let me ask you this, Dad. I ask all of our guests this, and I know I know how to do this, but maybe they don't. Maybe some young pastors or maybe some someone who feels called two missions, or maybe someone who has been frustrated with what you're saying, they feel like they didn't 
they weren't called any certain Christian thing, but they have a heart to do it another platform. How, how could someone maybe reach out to you and maybe just pick your brain on some of this if they want to talk to you further? Would you mind? No, I'd consider that impo- very one of the most important things I do. Yeah. How could they uh, reach out to you? You mind giving your email address over this? My email address is rhstyle, R-H S-T-I-L-E-S, four, the numeral four, at gmail.com. Okay, uh-huh. so rhstyles4 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. If you want to reach out to my father, there's the email address, and uh, who knows, maybe you may have found something in this interview that sounds similar and you just want to kind of pick his brain, he'd love to talk to you. And I will tell you this, I don't know anybody who wants to breathe on the flame of potential in a young person like my father. And I've always felt that, and I've seen him do it with so many people. And if you just want to be encouraged and motivated, give him a call. He'd love to chat with you about how to serve God with your whole life. So, Dad, uh, thanks so much for taking Thank time you for inviting me. It's yeah. been my joy. And I know one thing we share in common among many things, but one thing I know we feel very passionate about is that as many people as possible will hear the good news of the gospel and, and trust be Christ. saved and go to heaven with us. That's right. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.